Let's pray. Our holy triune God, what a joy it has been to sing together, to pray together, to hear your word together. Thankful for this conversation that you invite us to week in and week out together. And now we turn to the moment in this service where we We give our attention and our allegiance, our affections towards this word. I'm thankful. I'm thankful that sermons are are not contingent upon preachers to play Mad Libs, to fill in what we want, use a little bit of your word. I pray for a right heralding of your word, even this morning. I pray that that proclamation, not speaking as though there are questions at every turn, but Lord, being able to say, thus says the Lord, that's a comfort, that's a security. And yet I'm also aware that there would be some of us this morning who hear, thus says the Lord, and that be an infringement. And so would you correct our posture? Would you allow us to find mercy even through the difficult passages of judgment? Would you allow us us to behold you? That's 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 our hope. That's our aim. That is our desire. And if we're not there yet, would you help our unbelief? We want to see you. And so don't don't allow us to waste this moment of hearing from your word and meeting with you. Change us, we pray, for this to happen. For there to be a spark of the divine that happens in the souls of man, that we need your spirit. And so may the sermon that is heard be far more effective than the one that is preached. For your glory and for our good, we pray these things. Amen. Do you know the good that comes from having people speak hard or painful truths into your life? I'm, I'm not asking, are you aware that that's a category? I'm asking, are you well acquainted with that gracious provision of God that is found in what Proverbs 27, 6 would say, found in the wounds of a friend. Proverbs 27, 6, faithful are the wounds of a friend, but deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. Are you well acquainted with these painful wounds, these loving wounds from those who love you? And again, I'm not... uh, Asking, are you familiar with self-professed and self-proclaimed critics? Not asking, are you familiar with the preferential criticisms of others that are meant to tear you down instead of building you up? Uh, The Bible has a word for those of us who are prone to speak hastily, Proverbs 29, 20. 
And the word also has a word for us who are prone to focus in on the speck in the eyes of others, all the while ignoring the logs in our own. I'm not referring to that. What I am referring to this morning is those truths that while initially are painful to receive, they are genuinely for our good. The pain is not like that from a stranger's punch, but more like the pain that comes from a surgeon's scalpel. I wonder this morning if you are willing to be used by God in this way in the lives of others. I wonder this morning if you are grateful and thankful to God for how he uses others that are willing to faithfully and lovingly wound you for your good. And this is what Proverbs 27.6 is getting at. When these painful yet trustworthy words are rightly received, they don't lead to grief and they don't lead to death but they lead to joy and they lead to life. And so let's surround ourselves with friends like this. Let's become friends like this and let's thank God for friends who are willing to lovingly and faithfully wound if it means greater joy and greater life on the other side. Well, as we continue our series through Zephaniah this morning, These words that we will hear are like faithful wounds. They are wounding words. But in reflecting on these wounding words, anytime they come from the mouth of God himself, they should be received in faith. And they should be received not as as words that are meant to to infringe and lead us to uh, despair, but words that are meant meant to heal. When God's word critiques, when God's word confronts, when God's word warns, it never does so hastily. His assessments are never distorted. He never has to remove logs to address specks. His evaluation of what he sees is always trustworthy, always And so the question that faces us this morning is, will we receive such wounds that are meant to lead us to faith, that are meant to lead us to healing, that are meant to lead us to life, or will we reject them to the detriment of the good of our souls? We find ourselves this morning in the beginning of Zephaniah chapter 3. Zephaniah chapter 3, if you will remember how this prophecy began in Zephaniah chapter 1 a clear declaration of the word of the Lord coming through this prophet. This prophet, Zephaniah, more than likely having royal blood in his vein, coming from uh, the lineage of Hezekiah, who was a God-fearing king. Zephaniah is really, he's been given the, the responsibility to proclaim the coming day of the Lord, which we learn will involve the most devastating and terrifying judgments, as well as the most beautiful and lavish salvation. And if you've been here for the last two weeks, perhaps you're thinking, when are we getting to the most beautiful and lavish salvation? Come next week. (laughs) A.K.A. not today. (laughs) Chapter 1 began with, with the word of the Lord, and chapter 1 spoke of this universal, 
the inescapable, the dreadful judgments of God that are poured out, that are coming for sinners. No way is anyone excluded. Zephaniah chapter 1, verse 12, the Lord literally with a lamp going through Jerusalem to ensure that the people of God understand that no one will be spared from this judgment. And chapter 1 also made clear that surprisingly, that judgment wasn't just coming for godless nations out there. It was also coming for sinful people of his own. The people of Judah would receive this judgment. Chapter 2 began with a call to repent and to seek the Lord so that you uh, so that there, there is opportunity to be safe and to be hidden during the day of judgment. If we think of the coming day of the Lord as only one of judgment, we've misunderstood the coming day of the Lord. It's clearly going to be marked by terrifying, dreadful judgment. But it's also going to be a day of beautiful and lavish salvation. Through repentance, there is opportunity to to show up on that day and receive grace and salvation instead of judgment. And the rest of chapter 2 lays out God's faithful judgments against the nations that resisted him. And what we saw sort of taking up the lion's share of chapter 2 was there is a high cost to not repenting from your sin, to not turn from your sin. It is a high cost to be in the sightline of the judgments of God. We noted that uh, had we been there in the hearing of this prophecy as a part of the people of God, whenever, whenever Zephaniah began to talk about all of the judgments that would come to surrounding nations, there would have been this sort of rising noise within the people of God saying, yes and amen. Yes, give them what they deserve. Give them what they deserve. Yes, the, the, the Philistines, they deserved this. In Egypt, they had been such oppressors to the people of God. Moab and Ammon, make sure that they get theirs. And oh yeah, mighty Assyria, mighty Assyria who's going around conquering everyone that they can, bring justice on them. And in the midst of Zephaniah dishing out all of the judgment that's coming to godless nations, the people of God don't see what the word of the Lord has done. It's sort of shifted here at the beginning of chapter 3. There's more judgment to come. There's one more judgment that needs to be explained in detail. And unbeknownst to them, in all of their yes and amen to judgment for those godless people... The prophet Zephaniah says, But you, O Jerusalem, you, O Jerusalem, you, the people of God, you are guilty. These people that saw all of the flaws in others and understood why others should be judged now have come into the sightline of this pronouncement of judgment. And that's what Zephaniah 3, 1 through 8 makes clear. And in these few verses, we find at least five reasons that God is going to bring judgment to his own people. Why he's going to unleash his righteous hatred and wrath against 
the sin of his people. And with these reasons, Zephaniah wants to serve us this morning to ensure that we're not following the same deadly mistakes that Judah was making. And so let us learn and let us act accordingly. And these five reasons will serve as our sermon points this morning. And so the question, why does God judge his own people? Five reasons from Zephaniah chapter 3, 1 through 8. Number one, because his people are defiled because of their rebellion. His people are defiled because of their rebellion. Look at verse 1. Woe to her who is rebellious and defiled, the tyrannical city. This pronouncement of judgment. If we were to go back to the end of chapter 2, what we would find is that the last pronouncement of judgment to godless nations went to the city of Nineveh. That was the capital of Assyria. And there's some strong pronouncements. This, this city began to sort of rise up and say, I am, and there is no other besides me. And if you're familiar with Old Testament language, that's what the God of, of uh, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, that's what he would say of himself. There is no other. I am. And Nineveh then has the audacity to sort of say, we are God. And there's no one like us. And if you were just to read the end of chapter 2, moving into the beginning of chapter 3, it seems as though he's still addressing those godless nations. And again, if, I'm, if we're in the crowd, just imagine all of the, the amens that are, that are echoing through the people. But as he continues to make his way through the beginning of chapter 3, it becomes painfully clear, Right? that he's no longer talking about the godless nations out there. He's talking about the people of God here. And it's just the yes, amen, amen. It's very loud. It's resounding. It's, and then slowly they begin to realize, wait, whoa, wait. These judgments are for us. These descriptors in verse 1, rebellious, defiled, tyrannical, they presume that there's a relationship with one who's holy. How, how do we know they are defiled? Well, because we're talking about the relationship with one who's holy. How do we know that they're rebellious? Because we're talking about they're in relationship to one who has authority. And so even the descriptors here presume that they are being disobedient in this relationship with a holy and authoritative God. They were rebellious Here's the thing. Godless pagan nations, they didn't know the word of God. But his people, Judah, living in Jerusalem, they were rebellious in that they knew the word of God. They had been warned of disobedience, and yet they continue to revel in their pride and in their self-sufficiency, functionally rejecting God and serving themselves. Their rebellion led to defilement. That refers to a loss of status. The people of God had made themselves unfit. They were unclean. They were unholy. And this defilement and this unholiness makes them unfit for the kingdom of God. This isn't just something that was 
clear in the Old Testament. You jump over into the New Testament, the teachings of Jesus, Matthew chapter 5, verse 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. His people were not pure in heart. And there was a consequence for that. They were unfit to see and to be with God. And so if we could just sum it all up, we could say that thus, the judgment that was coming to them, it's what they deserved. It was merited. It's what they earned. God's own people had a serious problem with sin. The people whom God brought into, an exi- into existence as a people, they refused to listen to him. They refused to draw near to him. This is Jerusalem. This is the city that God had chosen for his temple to be built so that he could dwell with his people in a certain way in the temple. This is Jerusalem where sacrifices were offered so that they could draw near to God. And what we find is in their rebellion, there is an utter disregard for who God is and what God has said. And so Zephaniah then is raised up. And what he's entrusted to do is to wound, to give a warning that would lead to life. This is a trustworthy wound. It was to the people of God then, and it is to us this morning. You see, this is not unique to the generation of the people of Judah in Jerusalem. This is a repeated refrain all throughout the scriptures. This is a historical reality for every one of us. Psalm 106, 43 says, Many times he, God, would deliver them. They, however, were rebellious in their counsel. And so they sank down in their iniquity, in their sin. I mean, this is the biography of God's people in just one verse. Woe to her who is rebellious and defiled. And yet it applies to more than just God's people then living in Jerusalem. It's it's the story of people today. This is man's plight today hopelessly disobedient, running from the God who not only created us, but who also created us for a purpose and who will hold us accountable to that purpose with which he's created us. So the burning question is, why in the world were we created? We were created to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. How do we do that? By submitting to him. You see, ever since sin entered into the world, there's been this revolt that rises up within every human that says, no, 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 it's better for me not to submit to God. It's better for God to really yield to me. It's better for me to be God. It's better for me to call the shots. And what we see literally after Genesis 3, all the way until the end, when God restores that which man broke, what we see see is just evidence of the devastation, the fallout, that happens whenever the creation says, I want to live as though I'm creator. And it's brokenness, literally, at every turn. And not just brokenness like you sort of broke a bone and over time it will heal. No, it's brokenness like you've taken, you've taken a piece of, 
of uh, pottery and you've crushed it. And going, ah, I can't put this back together. It's irreparable in and of myself, in and of ourselves. And so we're hopelessly disobedient, running in our own directions, living unholy lives, not willing to submit fully, fully. I'm not talking about sort of say, okay, God, I will, I will give you a little bit. I'm keeping some, but no, no, a, a full submission to God's lordship. And yet what do we find? Romans chapter 3, we find that we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We find ourselves having to face a day, the coming day of the Lord, where we will stand before this holy God and give an account. And we find ourselves condemned because of our sin. And so all of the wrath that Zephaniah has been speaking of, we find ourselves in the sightline about to be those who will absorb that wrath, not just in a moment, but for eternity in a physical place called hell, separated from the loving, merciful, gracious presence of God. What we will know of God on that day in hell is his active and intense hatred against sin. And Zephaniah stands up and says, this judgment is coming. And yet in great unfathomable mercy that we will really see next week as Zephaniah unpacks this looking ahead. Were that the end of the story? Were that up to you and I? We are hopeless and helpless in our sin. And there's no good news. But I stand here today opening this word because this word has within it, the story of good news in which there was one who would come, son of God from eternity past, Jesus the Christ would come and he would take on our defilement so that all of the righteousness that was rightly his would then be credited to our account. Our defilement turned into righteousness as God trades our unrighteousness for the righteousness of his son. I mean, this is what Paul writes about in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God. This change of status from righteousness to unrighteousness is readily reversed whenever we submit in obedience to God and follow him in faith. Good news this morning is that your stubborn sin is defeated and overcome by an even more stubborn grace. Friends, there is nowhere to hide the coming judgments of God. And you don't have to spend the rest of your life, however long you have, coming up with a way in which you can try to hide from those judgments. No, instead, you can run to the refuge that has been made available through the sinless life, the substitutionary death on the cross of Jesus the Christ, and the bodily resurrection on the third day, friends. There is a refuge, and it's, it's found in Christ alone. This grace is available to you this morning through faith and repentance.
will you come in and be hidden in Christ? Will you confess your sin? And will you turn from your sin and trust in the work of Jesus as your only hope for standing before this holy God who will call us into account? Friends, turn from your sin and trust in Christ. And if you have questions about that or you want to talk further about that or you you think, I think for the first time ever I've done that. It's our joy as the people of God to walk with you during that. So don't rob us of that joy as we get to celebrate in the good news of you possibly going from death to life. And my Christian brothers and sisters, the scripture tell us that Christians will not continue to live lives that are dominated by, that are identified by rebellion against the commands of God. And so the gospel is good news, not just to get you out of your sin. The gospel is good news because it empowers you to not fall into sin going forward. This is why we need the gospel every day. We need to go back to what it is that Christ has done and what it is that that now we are given with the Holy Spirit living within us. It's not just he secured forgiveness, but he also has made possible for God to live in us to not fall into sin over and over. And so if the pattern of your life this morning leads more towards constant rebellion, very little conviction of sin. I'm just, I'm covered. I know I'm good. I pray that you would receive this wound from Zephaniah. Christian brothers and sisters, don't make peace with your sin. Don't do it. It's far too costly. And it will take you way farther than you're willing and ready to go. Don't assume that you're okay with God because you were dunked in water at one point or you come to church or the most dominant decor of your home is a cross. You're not safe. You're not safe hiding behind those two. Woe to those of us who play these types of games. God's word declares, repent of your sin. Turn to the Lord in faith. Trust in his grace. Follow him with all of your heart and life. Judgment was coming because they were defiled because of their rebellion. But secondly, why would God judge his own people? Number two, because his people did not receive his correction. His people did not receive his correction. We see this in, in verse 2. She heeded no voice. She accepted no instruction. She did not trust in the Lord. She did not draw near to her God. Think of the staggering privilege these people, out of all peoples, had. They heard the voice of the Lord speak, and yet they didn't listen. Can you imagine being told, what if, just, what if I told you that I could ensure that you could hear the very voice of God himself speaking to you? I mean, what a staggering privilege. Can you imagine how much pride one would have to have to hear the voice of God and to say, don't need it? What a privilege they had. 
and yet they didn't listen, they didn't heed, they didn't submit to the Word of God? If you, it, it, I just even think about this. What's the relationship that the people of God, that Christians ought to have with God's Word? It's helpful. Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 1 is just helpful for me. Then Moses summoned all of Israel and said to them, Hear, O Israel, the statutes and the ordinances which I am speaking today in your hearing, that you may learn them and observe them carefully. Hear them, learn them, keep them, and do them. That's the relationship God's people are to have with his word. They are to trust and to obey. And this this reason for judgment builds on the last one. It's not merely that they were were rebellious when they were confronted with the Lord's discipline. They remained hard-hearted towards God. They didn't receive his correction. They couldn't plead ignorance on the last day. When your trust is not in God, you do not walk towards him. And so what do the people of God do? In Jerusalem, they stiffen their neck. They harden their hearts as correction would come. She obeys no voice. She accepts no correction. Verses 6 and 7 tease this out more. I have cut off nations The word of the Lord coming and saying, look at what I've done elsewhere. I've cut off nations. Their corner towers are in ruins. I have made their streets desolate with no one passing by. Their cities are laid to waste without a man, without an inhabitant. God is saying, look around. I have done these things. Why? Verse 7. And I said, surely you will revere me and accept instruction so that Her dwelling would not be cut off according to all that I have appointed concerning her. But they were eager to corrupt all their deeds. God says, look at the nations that are laying in ruin. In part, that's so that you would watch and that you would repent. That you would see the way I judge sin and it would cause you to turn from sin. But you are all the more eager. But you leaned on your privilege? And you thought because I was willing to execute judgment to all of those godless nations that somehow you were immune to it in the midst of all of your sin? Unwilling to receive correction. Zephaniah declares of Judah, this was intended to instill fear into your hearts. And yet you were all the more uh, eager to keep your deeds corrupt. Proverbs chapter 12, verse 1 says, Whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but he who hates reproof is stupid. When your ears are receptive and your eyes are perceptive to the reproof that the Lord gives, that's a gift. That's a gift. And yet how often, when in sin, do we multiply our sin whenever correction comes? Instead of allowing our hearts to soften, we dig our heels in even further. And it's a terrible downward spiral, 
author of Hebrews, writing in Hebrews chapter 12, speaking about the way in which the Lord will discipline his people, not because he's mean, not because he wants to exact revenge and condemnation on his people. No, 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 no. There's none of that in Christ Jesus. So what's he doing with discipline? Hebrews 12, 11, All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields peaceful fruit of righteousness. There's even design in the discipline. Don't avoid or seek to not learn from his discipline. Don't reject the Lord's correction of you. Because in rejecting his discipline, the people of Judah proved themselves not to be his children. And so, friends, let us heed this warning. God's people rejoiced that God judged other nations, but they didn't take the greater warning that he was holy and that he will judge theirs. What God intended for his people to see was what he was doing to others so that those judgments would provide a gracious path back to him. There's a danger in us seeing God pour out judgment and not pausing to consider how we too might be guilty. And friends, this serves as an invitation to repent. Watching God's judgment on others ought to lead to a prayer from us for God to have mercy on us. So why would God judge his people? Because they were defiled because of their rebellion. Because they did not receive his correction. Third, because his people were abusive in their authority. His people were abusive in their authority. We see this in verses 3 and 4. There were many leaders in Zephaniah's day. There were officials to protect the city. There were judges to make decisions. There were prophets to proclaim the word. There were priests to care for the temple. And all of them did all of their responsibilities really badly. These leaders set the course, uh, set the city on a course towards destruction. Jeremiah, who would come uh, a few years later, Right after Jerusalem falls to Babylon, he puts the blame on the shoulders of the leaders in Lamentations chapter 4, verses 12 and 13. The whole city was guilty, yes, but the leaders led the charge. Zephaniah describes these leaders as predators who would devour at night to the point where there was nothing left in the morning, verse 3. Think about that. This is why they were called oppressive in verse 1. Going out and devouring the people that you are entrusted to care for and to serve. The people of God abuse their God-given authority. And God will take no part in that type of injustice. Prophets were prophets in name only. They were fickle. They didn't have godly conviction. They were treacherous. They would say things that sounded good, but that would put the people of God into harm's way. 
And if you go back and read Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 20, what you will find is that when prophets speak falsely against God, claiming to have a word from God and not having a word from God, Deuteronomy 18, 20 says, they shall be put to death. Priest, priest made what was holy profane. They were to instruct and to make judgments in accordance with the word of God. They profaned the sanctuary and they did violence to the instruction. Similar to the priests that Malachi writes about in Malachi chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. They had abandoned their calling to pursue their own pleasures. And so these priests, they didn't just walk out of the temple and say, we're done. No, these priests continued to do their rituals, but their hearts... And their behaviors belied any belief in him. Just in thinking about this text this week, just being reminded of the great temptations that lurk for leaders of God's people. And so I would just ask you to pray for your elders. Pray that we would not abuse God-given authority. Pray that we would wield it with great shepherd-like humility. When the people that God has entrusted exercises leadership and authority in a God-honoring way, it's an incredible blessing to the people that they lead. It's life-giving to be under the leadership of a godly leader. Not just a pastor, a godly boss, a godly coach, a godly parent. And it's a great offense in the eyes of the Lord to abuse your God-given position of leadership. It's a great offense. And you and I will give an account to the ways in which we lead. And God does not take the abuse of God-given authority lightly. leads us to our fourth reason for God's judgment against his people. Number four, because his people do not trust in him. His people do not trust in him. And so again, from going through, why is it that God's going to judge his people? He's going to judge them. Number one, because they are defiled in their rebellion. Number two, they did not receive his correction. Number three, they are abusive in their authority, number four, because his people do not trust in them. And really, we see this in verse two. She heeded no voice. She accepted no instruction. She did not trust in the Lord. This is the root issue. This is the wellspring from which all other disobedience and brokenness is flowing from. They do not trust in the Lord, nor do they draw near to the Lord to receive his mercy and his instruction. And let's just be clear, any sin that you commit is always about how you relate to the Lord. Even if you have so convinced yourself that this sin has nothing to do with the Lord, it has everything to do with the Lord. All sin is based around how you and I relate to the Lord. Sin is always against a personal God, the God who is righteous and merciful, who's forgiving and holy. And his people Though they had everything to make them succeed, his people 
doubted God's wisdom. They doubted God's goodness. They doubted God's righteousness. They doubted God's judgment. You see, the problem wasn't God's standard of righteousness was off. It wasn't that God had no longer been faithful. It was Judah's utter disregard to this daily faithfulness every morning. God is worthy of our trust in every way. And the people of God then were confronted with this truth. God is worthy of your trust in every way, which means today that you turn from your sin and you submit and you trust in Him alone. Friends, that same reality stands before us. He is worthy of our trust in every way, which means, bottom line, we can, we can sort of parse out kind of a little issue that you have here, a little issue. At the end of the day, it means will you turn from your sin and thinking that you know how to call the shots best and will you submit your wills to his? I mean, we just sift all of it down. That's the, that's the crux. That's the root issue. Will you receive his command and his discipline? Will you draw near to him through his mercy? Or will you do as Jerusalem did, many in Jerusalem did? Will you continue in your rebellion? Will you abuse his authority? Will you reject his correction? And if you choose that, understand that though though there may not be a terrible consequence today, a terrible consequence is coming. And your best, your best bet is to presume upon days and a longevity of life that you have no control over. Friends, that's a dangerous, precarious place to be. The Bible speaks that all of us will experience his trustworthiness. And we will experience his trustworthiness either in running to him now for salvation or finding that actually what he said he would do is indeed true on that coming day of the Lord. His trustworthiness will be on display in his righteous wrath on that day. On that day, there will be no question about whether or not he's trustworthy. For those who've taken refuge in him, they will know. (laughs) Oh, will they know. And for those who've spurned him, they will know. Oh, will they know. This is the declaration of Romans 3. There is none righteous. No, not one. And yet in great mercy and grace... God the Father put Christ the Son up as a propitiation, as an appeasement of his wrath. God is going to be shown righteous either way, friends. Whether you trust him now or reject him now, we will all go together on that day. Will he be your refuge? He can, friends, if you trust in him. And just even thinking about this, his people didn't trust in the Lord. Do you trust in the Lord? Do I trust in the Lord? Do we trust in his word? 
Or do we trust really like the world trusts? Could it be that we still trust in everything the world trusts in? All the while proclaiming to trust in the Lord? I, I mean, when was the last time that you got sick and you just prayed? Now, I'm not, I'm not about to take a sharp left here and rant against medicine. Praise God for medicine. But I'll just be honest with you. I quickly run to medicine without even thinking about praying. I'm not talking about counsel with other people or bad, but how often do we quickly and only run to counsel and not seek the Lord in prayer? Decisions, relationships, career change. I mean, we can make charts and graphs till we're blue in the face or in the hand. And yet, are we prayerful? Is there a trust in the Lord that runs deeper? I'm, friend, I, I, was, I was thinking about this. This is the best part of being a Christian. We get God. We can run to God at any moment. There's nothing else that this world will offer us that's better than getting God. And yet, sadly, how neglectful and negligent are we? Forgiveness of sin is a really good thing. Forgiveness of sin makes this possible, but forgiveness of sin is not the end. God transforms us. The Holy Spirit lives inside of us. And the biggest distinction of Christians is that they know God. Are you trusting God? Not business transaction trust. Is there a personal enjoyment of this God? And if you struggle, personal enjoyment of God, I really would invite you to come back next week as you see just how, just how much God enjoys his people. Do you desire to know God? I pray that we wouldn't be nominal, Christian in name only. I pray that we would be trust, trusting, growing in our trust of this trustworthy God. Last reason for God's judgment against his people. Number five, because God is righteous. Why is it that he's going to judge? Yes, he's going to judge his people because of their sin, because they didn't receive correction, because they abused their authority. Because they didn't trust in him. All of that flows from this. Because he's righteous. You see this in verse 5. The Lord is righteous within her. Can you, can you imagine just the grace in that one phrase? It's not the Lord is righteous way out there. In the midst of their rebellion, God was still with her. And he will do no injustice. God's righteousness is essential to his very being. It characterizes everything that he does. He's morally and ethically right. And he acts only in keeping with what is just and what is right. 
And even in saying that, God's not bound to some sort of external uh, standard of truth about what is just and what is right. No, he's that in and of himself. He's the standard. He faithfully adheres to his own perfections, and he acts only and always in accordance with his highest principles of justice. God's righteousness is his unswerving faithfulness to preserve and to display the glory of his name. And the contrast couldn't be any more stark in what he's talking about, the people of God, with God himself in verse 5. Unlike these human leaders, God perpetually shows that he is righteous in how he never breaks the law, in how he always shows forth his justice in making sure that all receive fair treatment. There's a big push in our day for Christians and for churches not to be sold out to be holy, but to be a little bit like the world so that we can reach the world. Friends, we're not supposed to be like the world to reach the world. We're supposed to be like our God, and he's compelling enough to reach the world. And so we're free from having to make Jesus cool by being worldly. And we've been commanded to make Jesus supreme by being faithful. And it's not through any change in God that the city and her leaders are what they are. His presence among them is what seals their guilt. In light of all the injustice that's running around the people of God, God himself is still in her midst doing what is right. Even in all of your rebellion, in all of your sin, God is still in your midst doing what is right. That is such a grace. I would just encourage you, friends, drink deeply of that picture in that reality, that in the midst of all of your sin, for just the last week, God has not turned his back on you. He is still in your midst doing what is right. Why? Because he wants to woo you back to himself. He wants to convince you that in a world where everything else is wrong, he is right. Friends, just drink deeply of that this week. Be convinced. Find time to pray and open the word and go deep and don't come up for air until your heart is convinced that he is right and that he's faithful not to leave you while you're pursuing other lovers. In fact, he's going to begin to head you in so that you would experience his love and that you would be reminded of what's for your good. And Zephaniah 3.8 ends this way. Therefore, wait for me, declares the Lord. For the day when I rise up as a witness, indeed, my decision is to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour out on them my indignation, all my burning anger, for all the earth will be devoured by the fire of my zeal. Verse 8, it is clear that God's patience will not last forever. God's justice is coming because of persistent disobedience. His wrath will not be held back any longer. Peter writes about this in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 through 10. Don't confuse his patience with forgetfulness. He's coming back. 
And he is patient now in allowing people, perhaps even you, to repent and turn from your sin and trust in him. And then he thunders these words, wait for me. He's coming. They will have to answer for what they have done. Friends, if you are in Christ, that day is not a day of terrifying judgment. We wait saying, Marin, just Lord, come. Maranatha, come quickly, Lord. Why? What in the world would lead a people who are going to face judgment to say, come quickly, Lord, because we have been hidden in the righteousness of Christ. That day will not be terrifying for those who belong to him. We will receive our inheritance from him. And the beauty of waiting is waiting for the one who's coming. We're waiting for him. How how can there be joy in this text about a God who's coming to consume the earth in anger? What kind of God is going to come and consume the earth in anger? Zephaniah says this God will do that. He's coming. He always does what is right. He always judges perfectly. There are no mistrials when he comes, no wrong conviction. God is more holy than we can imagine. And next week, we will see how his grace leaps onto the stage, and it couldn't be more refreshing. Friends, I pray that we would heed these wounds of Zephaniah, these words that are meant to wound us for our good. We desperately need to heed this warning of upcoming judgment. And we need to rediscover the wonder and the weight of the God who is worthy of all of our worship. He's the self-existent Lord over all. He's the supreme king above all. He's the creator of the universe, the owner of the universe, the maker who forms and sustains us. He's the shepherd who leads and loves us. He's the rock who saves us and delivers us. And so, friends, the invitation is, if you know this God and have taken refuge in him, then sing to him, worship him, shout to him, bow down before him, thank him for all he does, praise him for all he is, listen to him humbly, obey him immediately, rest in him completely, and rejoice in him wholeheartedly. Friends, that's the invitation because of Christ. And for my non-Christian friends here, turn and run to the refuge that's found in him alone. Let's pray. God, as we think about your word, which makes clear the reasons for your judgments, we want to look away and we want to avoid. We want to act as though that day will not come. And that doesn't change the reality that that day will come. And so I'm thankful for these few weeks. We're maybe uncomfortably at times. I'm thankful for the opportunity to be able to sit and just consider the coming judgments of the Lord. And God, as we think then, what is required of us? I pray for repentance, and I pray for faith. I pray that we would not be unchanged. 
And so in this moment of silence, would you even speak to us now about how we better align our lives with your word and so then experience fullness of joy that's found in you. Speak now. Your servants are listening. was lost in darkest night you thought I knew the way the sin that promised joy had led me to the grave. I had no hope that you would
benediction this morning comes from Philippians chapter 4, verse 7. May the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. You are dismissed.